This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right. Good morning. Aloha. I want to thank you so much for being here, uh, for choosing this seminar. You had a lot of amazing options, and uh, I'm just very humbled and thankful that you chose to be with us, at least in this session, hopefully all day. Um, our seminar is entitled The Art of End Time Preaching. And uh, how many of you were here yesterday? Oh, wow, thanks for coming back. So the rest of you are, uh, are, are here for the first time. Yesterday, we basically laid a good, solid foundation. We talked about the theology of preaching, the definition of preaching, the challenges and the problems in preaching, and how God can take weaknesses and turn them into strengths, and how the Lord wants to use all of us, each voice is to be utilized to share the good news message of the soon coming of Christ. And the work of God is not going to be finished by just a few loud voices speaking at the top, but when all of us use our voice, that's, that's when the loud cry message will go to the whole world. The walls of Babylon will come crumbling down, and uh, we're going to enter into the promised land uh, for, for all eternity. And uh, so I'm so glad that you decided to come here. I believe that what we're discussing in this seminar is something that all of heaven is interested in how to be effective communicators, competent communicators for Christ in the context of the last days of this world's history. And so we welcome you in Jesus' name. Uh, before we get into our presentation, uh, which is entitled The Matter of the Message, Eight Features Every Sermon Must Have. Before we get into that, I want to ask uh, if you have an empty seat next to you that you just move to the, to the outside walls. Uh, in case there are others who are going to come to look for seats. And so if you please do that, that will be a blessing. Just move all the way to the walls and um, really appreciate that. Now I wanted you to know or to, to remind, especially for those who are here for the first time with us, that this seminar is actually a shortened version of a, of a fuller seminar. It's uh, about 10 to 11 or 12 part series that, that we have written, and uh, we're giving just a, a, a fraction of it in this, in this time that we have, the six uh, opportunities we have together. And so if you'd like to get the whole version with the notes and the audio, you can go to our website, artofpreaching.com, and, uh, artofpreaching.com or you can come visit us at our booth. Uh, Revelation of Hope Ministries booth this evening, and uh, we'd be glad to share with you some DVDs and whatnot. Uh, we don't have this seminar recorded yet, but hopefully in the next couple months we will. Uh, we want to make it available to, to everybody. We want to spread it far and wide, hopefully to every, every single minister as well as layperson, so that we can get, get some practical tools of how we can uh, reach people for Jesus. As I mentioned the other night, uh, in the word preach are two other words, reach and each. So we want to preach in such a way to reach each, but not each is reached the same way. And so we want to learn how to uh, contextualize our methods without compromising the message. And the Lord Jesus will teach us that. We'll deal deal with that uh, in uh, in this presentation as well as others. We have four of them today, two before lunch and two after lunch. So we hope you'll you'll stick around for all of them. Uh, If you you needed to miss a, a, a seminar, it should have been yesterday's seminar. But not today. Today is very, very important. But you let the Holy Spirit lead. He'll lead you to the right seminar uh, where you need to be. But why don't we pray and jump into our message entitled, The Matter of the Message. Please bow your heads with me as we begin.
Thank you so much, dear God, for waking us up this morning, for giving us life today, and for the time that we have to fellowship together in your spirit. Lord, we recognize that our minds are weak, our hearts are so prone to wander. And so we pray, Lord, that you would please fill this room and our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Give us power from on high. Give us a mind that is like a sponge, that we might soak up every principle and promise that you want to communicate to us today. And please lead us in God. Be the teacher, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Usually this presentation is about an hour and a half. There's lots of good information, but I'm going to skip the introduction and just let you know that every single sermon has to have at least eight features in order to be complete and well-rounded. Every Bible study, every sermon ought to be measured by these eight things. I want to give them to you right now, and then we'll go through them together. Our message must have, number one, a foundation. Number two, focus. Number three, framework. Number four, function. Number five, friction. Number six, flow. Number seven, finish. And number eight, filled. And hopefully you'll remember that. We'll do a quiz at the end, see if you can remember. It's easy to remember. They all start with the letter F. And so today in this presentation, we want to ask the question, what shall we preach? We don't have to guess because God has told us. So in this lecture, we want to deal with the matter of the message, the substance of the sermon, the content of our communication, the premise of our proclamation, and the details of the discourse, and each Well-rounded, complete message will be measured by these eight characteristics. So let's go through them together, shall we? The first one, which is the most important, is a biblical foundation. The Apostle Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 that we need to preach what? Preach the word. People are not really concerned with fancy, fancy interpretations and speculations and anecdotes. People are hungry for the word of God, which is the bread of life. Now, friends, how do you eat bread? Normally not crumbs and normally not whole loaves, but slice by slice. Isn't that right? That's all sermons ought to be. Not just crumbs and not just not a whole loaf to overwhelm people, but slices of bread. Not too much, not too little. It says here in the book, Evangelism, page 501, the hearts of many in the world as well as many in church members are hungry, hungering for the bread of life. They are interested in the sermon of song, but they're not longing for that or even prayer. They want to know the scriptures. What saith the word of God to me? The Holy Spirit is working on mind and heart, drawing them to the bread of life. They come to hear the word, how? Just as it reads. And so we must make sure that our discourses, our Bible studies are biblically Founded. That's the most important. A house is only as strong as its foundation. The foundation is the most important. And God likens his word as to a solid rock. He says that it's the wise man that hears my words and does them. He is the one that builds his house upon the rock. When the rains come and the floods uh, uh, arise, that house will stand firm because as a firm foundation, the solid rock. But friends, we have to remember. That information alone does not save us. We're not saved by what we know. We're saved by who we know. And so all the information of the Bible needs to have a focus. It needs to have, number two, a 
Christ focus. And this one, my friends, is so very important. But the reason why biblical foundation is first is because you can't truly be Christ focused unless you're first biblically founded. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, please write it down. John 5, 39, Jesus says, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which do what? <clears throat> you see, the Jews of old, they thought that because of their head knowledge of the scriptures, that in, in that they had eternal life. But friends, many, many scholars are going to be lost. Many people who understand the Bible will be lost. Because it's not about what we know. It's about who we know. You see, the written word is, 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 the, is to reflect and to testify of the living word, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that teaches. In fact, the Bible is likened unto the moon, the faithful witness. And the moon doesn't have light in and of itself. The moon in the heavens reflects the light of the sun in the same way this word has only, it only has light because it reflects the living word, Jesus Christ. And so we must make sure that as we share the truths of the Bible, that we're not just communicating information, but that we're communicating the person that the information is, is to bring us to. Christ's focus is so very important. The, the book Gospel Workers, page 350, and I just want to read a few of these quotations, very potent passages. It says, the sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the what? The great truth around which all other truths cluster. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, it says, every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. The topic of the Sabbath only has value as it brings us to Jesus. The state of the dead and the sanctuary, all these beautiful truths that we have only has value as it magnifies the beauty of Christ. Every truth in God's word from Genesis to Revelation can only be correctly understood and appreciated as we see it in the light of the cross. Amen. And then it says in the book Gospel Workers, page 159, let the science of salvation. Be the burden of every sermon, the theme of every song, and let it be poured forth in every supplication. Bring nothing into your preaching to supplement Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. My friends, every message must find its focus and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We said yesterday that the Bible reveals the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, but it's found in the face of Jesus Christ. God, God's word is his Facebook. And if we're not seeing the face of Jesus, we're missing the main point of the passage. I don't mind if someone accuses me of being long-winded when I preach, but I'll, I'll get upset if anyone ever accuses me of not being Christ-centered. That's my main goal, is to help people to see Jesus. Our ministry is called the Revelation of Hope Ministries. It's not a revelation of fear or doom or gloom, but of hope. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Christless, God, Christless sermons are like offerings of Cain. Now, you remember the offering of Cain. What can you tell me about the offering of Cain? Why was it rejected? I mean, Cain offered it to the right God. He also offered it sincerely to the right God, which shows that not every sincere offering given to God is acceptable. You see, that offering had no fire. There was no light or warmth in that worship. Why? Because Cain offered the fruit of his own labors. And it was missing the blood of the lamb. In other words, his worship 
was centered in what he was giving to God, the fruit of his labors, that self-righteousness. But friends, true worship, Christianity is not about what we give to God, but rather what, what God gives to us. And when Abel offered the lamb, it wasn't so much an offering he was giving to God, but rather an offering that God was giving to man. The lamb, a symbol of Christ, would give his life for us. And it was that offering that had the fire from heaven. There was much light and much warmth because it was centered in what God was giving to man. And I want you to notice Ellen White makes the application. In Gospel Workers, page 156, many remarks have been made to the effect that in their discourses, our speakers dwelt upon the law and not upon Jesus. Many of our ministers have merely sermonized, presenting subjects in an argumentative way and scarcely mentioning the saving power of the Redeemer. Then it continues, Their testimony was destitute of the saving blood of Christ. Their offering resembled the offering of Cain. So it is, here's the application, with Christless sermons. By them, men are not pricked to the heart. They are not led to inquire, what must I do to be saved? And of all professing Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be the what? foremost in doing what? Uplifting Christ before the world. The proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. This truth with others included in the message is to be proclaimed, but the great center of attraction, Christ Jesus, must not be left out. And so let us continue to preach the whole message, but let's make sure that we preach it Christ-focused. Amen? helping people to see Jesus in every single passage, in every single doctrine. Very, very important. The Sabbath truth, yes, we need to explain to people that the seven days is the Sabbath, but that we, we need to do far more than that. The book Early Writing says that in the last days, God's people will pre- present the Sabbath truth more fully. More fully. How? By showing that it's, it's to point us to the wonderful creator that made us, our wonderful commander, our provider, our sanctifier and our redeemer. Every message must point to Jesus. I believe, friends, that every doctrine, every prophecy, and every principle in the Bible is like a camera lens. How many of you are photographers? Any, any people like photography here? I love taking pictures. I, uh, it's one of my favorite things to do as an introvert, just get out of nature and just spend time with the Lord and just composing shots and waiting for good lighting. And I have different lenses in my, in my camera bag that accomplish different things. In the same way, God's word, you have many different lenses, many different prophecies and principles and and doctrines. And each one is to magnify Christ. The purpose of a lens, friends, is to magnify and clarify an object. Now, obviously, the object is more important than the lens. But without the lens, you can't see the object clearly. You can't focus and so, so too with the doctrines of the Bible, the teachings of God. Each one is like a camera lens. The object is Christ. Christ is obviously most important. But without the lens of the Sabbath truth, without the lens of the health message, without the lens of the sanctuary message, we can't see the object very clearly. And so when you remove the lens of doctrine, you can't really know who Jesus is. You have a blurry picture of him and 
If you have a blurry picture of Christ, it's a lot more easier for the devil to introduce an antichrist. And you're looking, but without the doctrines, you're looking, you think it's Christ, but really it's the antichrist. And friends, that's what's happened in Christianity today. As many churches are saying, let's put aside our doctrinal differences. We can't really know what truth is. Religious relativism is creeping within Christianity today. What do we see? We see all the Christian churches of the world, almost all of them, uniting under the Antichrist B system. Looking to that man of sin as the head, as the one that can bring the whole world together. And friends, what, what caused that? It's because they removed the lens of prophecy, of doctrines, the teachings of Jesus. My friends, we can't biblically separate Christ from his own words. Now, people can do it, but you cannot biblically do it. Many preachers have done that. They've preached the Sabbath without Christ. But friends, you can't separate it. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Amen? Amen? Oh, so much more I can say about that, but we don't have the time. You see, when someone says, let's just talk about Jesus, I'm all for that, but there's a there's a dangerous implication that is attached to that statement. The implication they're saying when they say, let's just talk about Jesus, is that prophecy is not about Jesus. But friends, it's all about Jesus. It is the revelation not only from Jesus, but of Jesus. We can't separate Christ from doctrine because he is the logos. He is the word that was made flesh. He is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And we see that happening even in pockets of Adventism today. But friends, remember, the lens is so extremely important. In fact, it is vital in order to see and to know the real Jesus. If that makes sense, please say amen. Amen. And so if the prophecies and the principles and the doctrines are the lenses, and if Christ is the object, then the next question is this, how do we frame the object? The third thing every sermon must be measured by is it has to have a framework. And what is that? A prophetic framework, prophetically framed. In other words, when we take the picture of Christ and reveal it to the world, we must frame him or put him in the context of the end time last day message, the prophetic framework. It says in the book, Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 189. Please write it down. Notice what it says here. God has raised up his servants... To present truth that because it involves lifting up the what? Oh, I need your help this morning. Because it involves lifting up the cross has been lost sight of and is buried beneath the rubbish of formality. It, what is it referring to? The lifting up of the cross. It must be rescued and reset in the, what is this word? Framework of... Present truth, its claims must be asserted and its position given in the third angel's message. And so there you have a prophetic framework. The cross is the focus, but the framework, the the, the position is in the context, the framework of God's end time prophetic present truth message. And so Christ is the content, the Context is Bible prophecy. The truth of the cross has been buried beneath a rubbish of formality. We must rescue, reset it. Christ is the focus. Present truth is the framework. Now, what does that mean? 
Early Writings, page 63, says, There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. What kind of truth do we need now? Now, let me tell you, friends, every present truth is precious, but not every precious truth is present. And it says here that what we need now is present truth. I've seen the danger of messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. And so we've been told that what we need now is present truth. But what exactly is present truth? Many people have different ideas of what it is. And many people have misrepresented this phrase grossly. Many people claim to preach present truth when they're just preaching a bunch of legalism. And their own hobby horses and they're dwelling upon minors that are not calculated to unite the flock. So what exactly is present truth? Well, friends, I believe the clearest definition of present truth is found in John 14, verse 6. Where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the Jesus is the way to God. He is the truth about God because he is the very life of God. The only way, the only truth, and the only life. But when Jesus said, I am, what tense is that? That's present. And so when he said, I am the way, that means he is the present way. I am the truth, he is the present truth. I am the life, he is the present life. So the present truth, friends, is the truth of the present way and the present life. It's wherever Jesus is presently. And where has God revealed the way? Psalms 77, 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And so the way of God is in the sanctuary. Because the way of God in the sanctuary reveals the present truth about God. That is wherever the life of God is. Wherever Jesus is presently in the sanctuary is the present truth. And we understand that since the year 1844, where has Jesus been? He's been in the most holy place. And so, my friends, the prophetic end time present truth message that we are to frame Christ in is where he's at now. And that is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary doing a special cleansing work for his church above, as well as in our hearts below. Now, what message in the Bible calls attention to where Jesus is and what he's doing now? What specific messages? It's the message of the sanctuary and the judgment. Book Great Controversy, page 488, says this. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. It says all need a knowledge for themselves of two things. What does it say? The position and work of their great high peace. The position, that's the location where he is. The work is his occupation. What is he doing? And it says that all of us need a knowledge for ourselves of where Jesus is and what he's doing. The position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. In other words, if we don't know where Jesus is and what he's doing, we're not going to know where we need to be and what we need to be doing. We're not going to be on target. 
we'll miss the mark, we'll fall short. And so it says that we need to understand those books, the sanctuary and the investigative judgment, because it reveals the present truth where Jesus is presently. Now, what books of the Bible especially teach us about the sanctuary and the investigative judgment? The books of Daniel and Revelation. Those are the two apocalyptic books of the Bible. There are only two books in the Bible that are apocalyptic in its entirety, Daniel and Revelation. It deals with end-time apocalyptic events. And that's why we've been told in evangelism, page 195, let Daniel speak. Let the revelation speak and tell what is truth. But whatever phase of the subject is presented, uplift Jesus as the center of our hope. Amen. So Christ is always the focus. But the framework is prophecy, present truth, Daniel and Revelation. Another quote, Evangelism 196. Ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation should be carefully studied. And in connection with them, the words, what? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. And God has called us to be like John the Baptist, the final forerunners in the last day to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so it's as if Daniel and Revelation have been silenced. And she is arguing, let them speak. Don't silence these end-time books. They are of utmost relevance for us living in the last days. And so, friends, let's make sure. Let us make sure that we never shy away from prophecy. I know that there are many people... Evangelists and pastors that have preached these books with a sense of fear and doom and gloom, and it's tragic, very tragic. It's terrible, actually. These books reveal Jesus so beautifully. They're not scary books. They're beautiful books because they reveal the beautiful Christ. Amen? And so those who say, I don't want prophecy, they're really saying, I don't want Jesus. Because revelation is the revelation of Jesus. Those who say, I don't want to hear the three angels' messages, what they're really saying is, I don't want the gospel. Because those three angels' messages are called the everlasting gospel. What is the love chapter in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 13. What is the prophecy chapter in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 14. talks about prophecy. They're side by side because you can't have one without the other. Who in the Bible are known as people whom God really loved? Daniel, thou art greatly beloved. And John the Revelator, he's the one that's John the Beloved. And friends, it's interesting, God loves everyone, of course, but the Bible makes it a point to emphasize that these were loved by God and they received the deepest prophecies for us in these last days. And why? Because it's all about love, friends. It's not a cheap, sappy, sentimental Hollywood version of love, but a love that is deep, stronger than death, and stronger than sin. Let's continue. More I can say on that. We don't have the time. And so number one, In order for a message to be well-rounded and complete, it must have a, what? Biblical foundation. Number two, it must be Christ-focused. Number three, it must be prophetically framed. And then number four, it must have a practical function. A practical function. In other words, it has to land in the living room of our lives. It has to be relevant and practical for day-to-day living. And so, let's go a little bit deeper on this issue of present truth. 
What exactly is present truth? Well, you realize that there are actually two, two categories of present truth. Number one, I call it universal present truth, and then personal present truth. Now, the universal present truth, the present truth, the, the general present truth message that the whole world needs to hear is what we just talked about, the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel that will be preached in all the world before Jesus returns. That's the universal present truth. The, the, the hour of God's judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth. The fact that Babylon has fallen, the mark of the beast issue, the patience of the saints, the righteousness of Christ. This is universal present truth. But then there is also a personal present truth that meets the needs of the individual in their present situation. If someone has failed God so deeply and they are struggling with doubt, thinking that they can never be forgiven because of the sin that they've committed, their personal present truth, they need to know the reality of the power of the blood of Jesus. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's more of a precious truth. That's a truth that's applicable to every time. But if they're struggling with, with, with doubts of forgiveness, maybe they don't, they don't need to hear about the health message or, or the mark of the beast issue in that moment because they have a present need. They need to know about the mercy of the Lord. Amen? Therefore, that precious truth becomes a present truth for that personal situation. If one is struggling with their marriage, maybe they don't need to hear about the 2,300 days broken down. In fact, they don't in that present situation. They need their personal present truth is to know the principles of how to have a godly marriage, how to have love and respect. If one is infected with self-righteous legalism, then their personal present truth is to know the true mercy and love of Jesus. That's a precious truth. But it becomes present truth when that person, man, that person may have the right diet, the right dress, the right theology, but the wrong attitude. So what is their personal present truth? They didn't learn how to be like Jesus. Amen? And so when we combine universal present truth and personal present truth, it is right on target. I want you to notice, we've been, we've been told in Testimonies, Volume 4, page 394, theoretical discourses are essential that all may know the form of doctrine and see the chain of truth, link after link, uniting in a perfect whole. But no discourse should ever be delivered without presenting Christ and Him crucified as the foundation of the gospel, making, what is that? practical application of the truth set forth. The people should not be left without instruction in the what? Practical truths which relate to their everyday life. You see, our message is high and holy and elevated in nature. But at the same time, it must come down to earth in practical relevance for the daily life. Amen? In other words, yes, it's Important for us to have correct theology because the theology is the foundation. But we also need to have windows and doors in our home and furniture. Those, those are the practical things that we deal with day by day. And so it must have a practical function. Now, what are some of the practical things that our message needs to have? Our messages need to answer two kinds of questions. How many? Number one, the essential questions of life. And number two, the practical questions of life. What are, what are those? 
Well, did you know, friends, that every human being, whether they recognize it or not, whether they articulate it or not, are asking five main questions. And only when they find the answer to these five questions will they have a successful life. If they only know a few of those answers, they're not going to have a success. They're not going to live life to the full. They're, they're going to be, be missing something in life. Everyone, every single person here, we're all asking these five questions, whether we recognize it or not. And the Bible answers them, and we need to make sure that we present those answers in our Bible studies, in our messages. What are those questions? They are as follows, and this is in sequential order. Where am I from? That deals with origin. Who am I? That deals with identity. Why am I here? That deals with your purpose. How shall I live? Deals with morality. Where am I going? Deals with destiny. And so every single human being is, is longing for the answers to these questions, whether they articulate it in those words or not. Everyone is trying to find out, where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How shall I live? Where am I going? The Bible answers all of those questions with absolute beauty. And by the way, you have to ask them in this order. Because the only way you can know your identity is if you know where you came from. The only way you can know your purpose is if you know who you are. The only way you're going to know how you should live is if you know that purpose and where you're going based on the choices you make when you live. So they must be answered in that sequential order. And so we must make sure that the message we bear has a practical function. It is answering the essential questions of life, but not only the essential questions, the practical questions of life, like, how do I raise my kids? How do I have a successful marriage? How do I take care of my health? How do I manage finances? How do I overcome sin? How do I have a relationship with God? These are the practical questions of life that our message needs to deal with. And so when we share the truth about the Sabbath, the truth about the 2,300 days, the truth about the remnant church and all of these wonderful things, let's make sure that we make space to deal with these questions and show how the heavenly theology comes down to earth in practical relevance. If that's clear, please say amen. Uh, somebody said it like this, we must, put, we must put legs on our lesson and feet on our faith. The, mes the message must land in the living room of our lives, the room that we live. We must demonstrate what the gospel looks like practically in the real world. And God asks all of these questions and answers them in the word. You know the Bible? The Bible is the book that when you read it, it reads you. You read the Bible, you read it, it's reading you. In other words, it's, it's, it's asking the questions that your heart has been asking. And then it provides beautiful answers. Amen? And so, number one, our message must have a biblical foundation. Number two, Christ focus. Number three, prophetic framework. Number four, practical function. You folks are slowing down. We're only on four. We're only halfway. Number five, every message, every Bible study ought to have a logical flow. It ought to have a flow, a logical flow. My friends, I'm so grateful that the message of the Bible is not only absolutely beautiful, but it's also reasonable, logical, and intellectually stimulating. Everything in the Bible is indelibly connected together. I want you to notice. Education 124 says this. 
when thus searched out and brought together, they will be found to be perfectly fitted to one another. Each gospel is a supplement to the others. Every prophecy, an explanation of another. Every truth, a development of some other truth. Every principle in the Word of God has its place. Every fact, its bearing. And the complete structure in design and execution bears the testimony to the, bears testimony to its author. Such, such a structure, no mind but that of the infinite could conceive or fashion. The Bible demonstrates divine design. 66 books written over a period of 1500 years by at least 36 different authors who lived on three different continents, all talking about the most controversial subject in the universe, God. And yet we see that with all of those factors, you, you see demonstrated divine design. The Bible interprets itself. And we did a show people how everything is indelibly connected together. Like a jigsaw puzzle, we must look to see how everything is connected. We must gather all the puzzle pieces, all the doctrines, all the teachings. And as we put all of those things together, we will see the big picture of who Jesus is. And it's the most beautiful picture you will ever see. Evangelism, page four, uh, 648, 649. Oh, I love this quote. Don't miss this. Those who teach the word should not shun, what? Mental discipline. Every worker or company of workers should, by persevering effort, establish such rules and regulations as will lead the, to the formation of correct thought and action. Such a training is necessary, not only for the young men, but for the older workers, in order that their ministry may be free from... How many want to have a ministry like that? Free from mistakes. And that their sermons be clear, accurate, and convincing. And then it says, Some minds are more like an old curiosity shop than anything else. Many odd bits and ends of truth have been picked up and stored there, but they know not how to present them in a clear connected manner. It is the relation that these ideas have one to another that gives them value. What gives, what gives all, all the different truths value? As we see how they're related together, how they're connected together. And then it says, every idea and statement should be as closely united as the links in a chain. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. When a minister throws a mass of matter before the people, for them to pick up and arrange in order, his labors are lost, for there are few who will do it. In other words, we have to be organized. Amen? We have to, we have to make sure that we present the message in a logical, sequential way. As in a link, links in a chain. Of truth. You see, the same word that created worlds also can create new brain cells in our mind. The biblical worldview, friends, is not a blind faith, it's an intelligent faith. But we have to present it intelligently in a logical flow. It must be intellectually stimulating. 
Sometimes we misrepresent the message by presenting it poorly or meanly. So our sermon should be logical. The truth should be presented in a clear, connected manner. And most listeners won't do that work for you. You have to do that work. So let's not be sloppy in sermon preparation. We are presenting the most noble truth in the universe. And so, friends, let's say it and let's say it right. Amen. Let's not just be biblical. Let's be beautiful, too. Let's not only be right. Let's be winsome as well. Let's not only be sound, but let's say it in a profound way, too. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Royal truths should ride in a chariot of gold. I like that. In other words, it's not just about the content, but also the packaging too. How we present that content. And so what I mean by this, here's what I mean. Our introduction should be captivating. Our objective should be clear. Our point should be distinct. Our transition should be logical. Our illustrations relevant. Our arguments tight. Our explanations should be sound. Our language ought to be profound. And our clothes should be compelling. It has to have a logical flow. And we'll deal more on that in our third presentation today. We're going to deal with 13 steps of sermon preparation, how to begin, how to write a sermon from beginning to end, and the specific steps we need to take. And so we hope you'll stick around for that. All right, number six, our sermons must have the friction of conviction. The friction of conviction. The Bible says in Isaiah 58, cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. My friends, these last days, God is calling us not only to get ready for his coming, but to prepare others for the coming of the Lord. We are called to be the final forerunners in the last days. And I want you to notice, if we're called to be the final forerunners, what about that first forerunner? What did John the Baptist do to prepare a people for the first coming? I want you to notice in the book, Voice and Speech and Song, page 358, Ellen White says this, describing the first forerunner, John the Baptist, and how he spoke. It says, it was the purpose of John to what? Startle and arouse the people and cause them to tremble because of their great wickedness. In simplicity and plainness, He pointed out the errors and the crimes of men. He was not afraid to call sin by its right name. And it says a power attended his words. And reluctant as the people were to hear the denunciation of their unholy lives, they could not resist his words. He flattered none, neither would he receive flattery from any. The people, as if with common consent, came to him, repenting and confessing their sins. And were baptized of him in Jordan. Kings and rulers came to the wilderness to hear the prophet prophet, and were deeply and were interested and deeply convicted as he fearlessly pointed out their particular sins. People were convicted, but don't miss that. Even though they were convicted to the point that they were trembling, they were drawn at the same time. They were drawn to hear what he had to say. You see, people want to be challenged. Young people want to be challenged and changed. And friends, there's a heresy, there's a lie of the devil that's been spreading around that, 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 that true love will only say good things. But friends, true love will never cover the truth. 
It's true love that makes the truth known to others because the truth shall make us free. But listen, 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 friends. Before we can be made free by the truth, we first must know the lie that holds us in bondage. We must, I like what it says in the book, Christ's Object Lessons. We must feel the pain of our sins before we will seek healing from the great physician. And so every sermon must have the friction of conviction. But friends, let's make sure we're doing it. Not like how I've seen people do it as if they're rejoicing in iniquity. You know, there's some people who like to air out the dirty laundry of the church. You sometimes see them on YouTube and when you look into their face, you look into their face and it's like they, they're, they're, they're happy to do it. You don't see the compassion and the, the tenderness and the sighing and crying spirit when they do it. Rather, it looks like a demon in their face. And you listen to the tone of their voice. My friends, even though someone is saying the truth, it doesn't mean they're sent by God. Because when the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act, the law says she she should be stoned, what they said was 100% accurate, but they were more guilty than the one that they were condemning because their self-righteous hypocrisy and their arrogance and their spiritual pride. My friends, not everything that glitters is gold. Not every rainbow represents God's promise. Not everyone who claims to teach present truth are preaching from a heart filled with the spirit of Jesus. Amen? So how do we do it then? We need to do it just like Jesus. Here's here's our example. Desire of Ages 353. Christ himself did not suppress one word of truth, but he spoke it always in love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful kind attention in his intercourse with the people. He was never rude, never needlessly spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censure human weakness. He fearlessly denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, but tears were in his voice as he uttered those scathing rebukes. I want to rebuke like Jesus. And friends, people were convicted, but they were also comforted in the presence of Jesus. My friends, remember this. The hand that points the finger of rebuke, that hand that pointed the finger of rebuke, that same hand was nailed to the cross. The hand that pointed the finger of rebuke was the same hand that was nailed to the cross. Many people can make you smile. Some people can make you cry. But it takes a very special person. Very few people can make you cry and smile at the same time. And that's what Jesus does. To cry with the conviction of sin. But at the same time to smile with the comfort of mercy. That's the character of God right there. Justice and mercy. Not one or the other, but both blended perfectly together. My friends, every sermon ought to do two things. It ought to comfort the afflicted, and and it ought to afflict the comfortable. Did you catch that? That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, but also the convictor. 
And if a message is truly spirit-filled, it will do those two things. It will not only comfort the afflicted, it will also afflict those who are comfortable in their sins. But we must make sure that we have the right spirit. We must make sure that we have the spirit that says, but for the grace of God, there go I. If it wasn't for God's grace, I would be in that same situation. We do with a, with a deep sense of humility, humility and empathy for others. Amen? All right. Number seven. Number one, let's review. In order for a message to be complete and well-balanced and rounded, it must have, number one, a biblical foundation. Number two, it must have a Christ focus. Number three, it must have a prophetic Framework, present truth, dining revelation, three angels' messages. Number four, it must have a practical function. Number five, it must have a logical flow. Number six, the friction of conviction. Then number seven, it must have a strong finish. The close must be strong. Gospel Workers, page 151 says, No one can tell what is lost. By attempting to preach without the unction of the Holy Spirit. In every congregation, there are souls who are hesitating, almost decided to be holy for God. Those are sad words right there. Almost decided. Decisions are being made, but too often the minister has not the spirit and the power of the message. And no direct appeals are made to those who are trembling in the balance. Don't let that be said of you, friend. It says here, Evangelism, page 280, at the close of every meeting, decisions should be called for. In other words, every message ought to have a strong finish. Not only a sermon, but the Bible study you give to someone. You must call them. You must ask them to make a decision to accept the message that you have presented. Amen? I have a whole presentation on how to, how to do this. It's called the motivation of the masses, the art of the appeal, the science of conviction and the art of the appeal. Unfortunately, we didn't have any, enough slots to present that message, uh, but you're more than welcome to, to check out the website and, and get it there. But number eight, the last one, our message must be spirit-filled. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of what? the spirit, and of power. My friends, let us never stand up behind a pulpit to declare our own wisdom and wit. Let us stand up in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Amen? That's what God wants. That's my my desire. That even though I may not say the, 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 the right words, the right way, that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit that I speak not merely from a head knowledge, but from a heart experience with the Lord Jesus living in my life, to be spirit-filled, to be full of the power of God. I like, it says, with Jesus behind you, the Spirit within you, the Word beneath you, and the people before you, there is a power that works through you, that shakes the earth and enlarges the population of heaven. How many of you like to have that experience? As we close today, let's review one last time. Every single sermon, every Bible study, every discourse we give needs to have these eight features. 
in order to be full and well-rounded and complete. Perhaps more, you can add to it. Let me know if you can think of other Fs. Perhaps more, but surely not less. Let's see if you can remember without looking at your notes. Number one, biblical foundation, because the house is only as strong as the... And it's only when we're biblically founded that we can be number two, Christ focus. He is the object. But then, when you take the picture of Christ, how do we frame him? Number three, a prophetic framework. Jesus is the content. He's the content. The context is prophecy. It's Christ in the context of prophecy. It's not prophecy in the context of Christ. It's Christ in the context of the present truth, last day message. Prophetic framework. But don't just talk about high and heavenly things. Theology must have, number four, a practical function. We, people need to know how this beautiful theology functions in the day-to-day life. Answer the essential questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How shall I live? Where am I going? And the practical questions of life. Practical function. And then number five, it must have a logical flow. We must present it in a sequential, logical way. In an orderly way. We must show how everything is indelibly connected together. It takes mental effort and discipline to do that. A logical flow. Then number six, it must have the friction of conviction. The message ought to comfort the afflicted and afflict those who are comfortable in this world and in their sins. The friction of conviction. And that's how something is polished, right? You have to have some friction. The friction of conviction. Then, number seven, it has to have a strong finish. The close must be compelling, calling people to decision. And then, number seven, it must be spirit-filled. And so, if you missed them, there they are on the screen. As we preach universal and personal present truth, focused in Christ, founded upon the Word, we're going to see transformation take place, not only in the pew, but in the pulpit as well. This is transformational preaching. And friends, I want to have that experience. How about you? Remember, God calls us to present the message, not only for their sake, but mainly for our sake. Because God could use the angels who are far more eloquent than we are. But he wants to use the the, the voices of sinful, broken, messed up humanity. Why? Because as we reach out, God reaches in. As we give, we receive even more because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Amen? So how many want to strive for this? How many of you want this in your life? If so, would you stand with me as we close in prayer? And just before we pray, don't miss the next presentation. If you should have missed one, maybe it should have been this one, but not this next one. This next presentation is is beautiful. We're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, at the Sermon on the Mount, listening to the message of the Master, the greatest sermon ever preached, to to see the, the hermeneutic, but also the homiletic of Jesus. Why Jesus said what he said in the order that he said it. You know, there's actually a sermon outline on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus has a sermon outline. It's, it's fascinating. That's what we'll study after our 50-minute break. So we hope you'll stick around if, if the Holy Spirit leads you to that. But let us pray and ask God that you help us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your great love and mercy, Call, for calling us. Lord, you said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Thank you, Lord, that the ordination has been laid upon each one of us to be witnesses and messengers. Thank you, Lord, that we don't necessarily have to go to a large educational institution to be used of you because the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher. And so please fill us with your spirit and give us wisdom from heaven. Not only to know what to say, but how to say it, and when to say it, and why we're saying it with the right spirit. Lord, please give us the experience of Jesus. We thank you for hearing this prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.